You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I chat with the FI couple, Allie and Josh, to discuss mainly how they used house hacking as a tool for their road to financial independence and how they align their vision and goals as a couple in real estate. During this interview, we went into detail about their story as a couple to financial independence and how house hacking was a catalyst that changed their lives for the better. In addition to how they were able to use it as a tool that would ultimately help rapidly pay off their student loan debt, they also gave insight on their challenges as a couple starting out in real estate investing and how they were able to align their visions and goals. Now, let's get right into this long overdue episode with Allie and Josh, the FI couple. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have two guests. We don't often have two guests on the show. Usually, it's just me and one. So I'm excited to have Allie and Josh here, the FI couple. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much. We're super excited to be here and to connect with you today. Yeah, big fans of the show. And it's full circle, cool honor to be on today. Let's start off by you both telling us a little bit about yourself outside of money, investing. Just tell us a little bit about you guys. So we actually both work in human services. I'm a full-time career counselor for workers with disabilities. Allie's a full-time school social worker. And so we are in upstate New York in the Albany area. And we kind of stumbled into like personal finance and real estate and stuff because we were on the verge of getting married. But we were in a lot of debt and feeling both very burnt out. $102,000. Yeah, $102,000 in debt. (laughs) Feeling very, very burnt out and looking for kind of like a silver lining. And that's kind of how our path towards like financial independence got started. But Josh and I met back in 2011 in college and we were in the same major and he was one of three guys in our major. (laughs) So he kind of stood out and female dominated profession. And we've just been close friends ever since, you know. No, we like being outside, adventures, hanging out with our cats and nothing crazy. <laughs> I want to talk a bit about what money was like for both of you guys growing up. You can share as little or as much as you'd like in terms of the actual details, but what was money and investing like in your households growing up? Was it talked about or was it more of a taboo subject? Money was definitely talked about in my household. I feel like I grew up in like a middle class type household. Yeah. Both of my parents had jobs and I remember vividly like in high school, my dad was laid off from work and that like really shook my family and that was big. And before that, I didn't really think about money or how we would buy things or anything like that. I definitely had that level of privilege, but money and spending wasn't really discussed. I knew my parents argued about money, but that was it. But then after that, I remember my mom went back to school to get like a state job and security and pension and all of that. And I think that experience truly shaped me because now I'm a state employee with a pension and that security. So I think that value was kind of instilled in me from that. And for me, I come from like a polar opposite. So very, very poor, a single mom with three kids and 
money was never talked about, but we always knew we didn't have any. So at a very early age, I kind of learned that if there were things that I wanted in life, not because of my mom, like she just couldn't provide it. So as early as I could start working, I started working and had a bunch of odd and end jobs and everything like that, because I became aware very quickly that our situation was not going to improve. And so started working, making money. And so most of my life up until maybe the last few years was very much like a scarcity mindset. And that shaped a lot of the decisions that I used to make. Once I got that first full-time job, I was like, well, I need to have a really fancy car because like that's like significant. And that means that you made it, at least where I come from. So when we first got together, we definitely weren't talking money because Money talks weren't really a big part of our growing up, but it's definitely something that's evolved with time. If I understand your story correctly, you guys graduated with somewhere around $100,000 in student loan debt. Would you have gone about school differently had you known what you know now? And I'm not saying would you have not gone altogether, unless maybe that is what you would have done. That's fine. But would you have possibly applied for more scholarships or gone to a cheaper school or just look for some other route to not graduate with as much student loan debt? Here's the wild part about this. So I applied to private and public schools. We live in New York State, so the public school system is more affordable than a private university. We both went to public school. Um, We went to state school. We got scholarships. Josh was in the EOP program for folks that came from disadvantaged backgrounds. So he had a very subsidized tuition. And even so, I mean, I did go back for my master's, which was probably like 34000 on its own. But I went to a state school again and I got scholarships. Even with that, we both had jobs full time. It still blows my mind that we graduated with that level of debt. I feel like I would do it differently. I maybe would have worked harder to pay it off as I was going. Part of me wonders, would I have gotten my master's? Like, I really love being a social worker, but I think that there could be other careers that I could pursue. Now we want to pursue FI. I don't even want to be a social worker (laughs) for the next 30 years. It's a little ironic, but what do you think? I mean, for me, again, like growing up with less than no money, when I got to college and they were offering basically all the financial aid I could ask for, way more than I needed, I was like, Absolutely. I'll take all that money because at 18, you're just like, that's a lot of money. Right. Knowing what I know today, I definitely wouldn't have taken out as much student loans and I would have worked more. I worked all throughout college to earn money. But again, not really with the mindset of like, I want to mitigate my student loans. I didn't think about student loans in college. I was just like, I'm in college. This is crazy that I'm here coming from where I come from. Like no one makes it to college. I'm going to buy beers and Taco Bell. Pretty much, (laughs) you know, and then I'll figure out the debt stuff afterwards. Do you think both of you were kind of impacted by not really having people in your family to rely on in terms of like what to do for college? I know for me, that was like a huge thing. I'm the first one in my family to ever go to college. So I didn't have anybody like my dad was willing to help, but he didn't know. Right. So he'd never done it. So nobody in my family had. So there's no real person that I could rely on. I mean, I have my guidance counselor and stuff, but they don't really understand money. They just want you to get into the school that you want to go to and help you find out like what you want to do with your life. Not really the financial side of things. I didn't really have that person to rely on. And I'm guessing you guys probably were in a similar situation. So I know like for Josh, he definitely did not um, at all. But for me, I mean, I remember my mom going through the FAFSA forms and the financial aid and we were going through all of it. And I remember at 18, you're saying, yeah, I'm going to take on this like tens of thousands of dollars of debt. But I think even if you had someone to guide you through it, one, I think there's just this perception that 
everyone has to go to college. It's just what you do if you want to be successful. And that's obviously not true. But that was my schema at the time. And two, because everyone goes to college, everyone has debt. So who cares? I'm just going to have it. I'm going to have this great job and I'm going to pay it all off before I'm 30, right? Because that's what my 18-year-old brain said. So my mom was definitely supportive, but I don't think I was critically thinking about the implications. I couldn't. I honestly wasn't even like planning to necessarily go to college. I found out about an educational opportunity program for disadvantaged youth. And that was the only reason I got into college in the first place. So once I got the acceptance letter from my family, everyone was just like, that's amazing. Don't think about the implications of it. Like, just be happy that you got into college. That's what I did. There's two pieces that I want to dive into about, or three actually, about that. One is the FAFSA, two is getting your master's, and three is being successful without a college degree. I agree completely that nowadays you don't need a college degree to be successful, but you guys are 30, 31-ish, if I remember correctly. I'm 26. So I'm not too, too far behind. And we're not old by any means. But even in college, when we entered, what, 18 years old, 19 years old, that's 10, 12 years ago, say, roughly, it was very different. Like People weren't as successful without college as they are today. If you're going into college now, you can point to hundreds of people that are super successful without college. When we were going into college, it wasn't like that. There was maybe a couple, a handful here and there, but really not many So we didn't really have that advantage of saying, hey, maybe we don't need to go to college to get a good career or make money like these other people. Instead, what everybody did was go to college. So I think now is a little bit different from even when we went, and it wasn't even that long ago. I completely agree. When you think about like the transformation of the internet, I think where it was back in 2008, 2009, to us then, it probably felt like really advanced. But now it seems like almost like archaic in comparison to the level of information that you're able to access now, like readily access. And if I want to see someone who didn't go to college, but created an online business, I can literally just go on my phone and get 10 or 100. And not like, oh man, like it's some mysterious way. People literally just like give out the blueprint now. This is how you can create an online business in a year or something like that. So the level of information today far exceeds what was available back then. To your point, right? Like I podcast full time now and I do some consulting stuff and some other things, but for the most part, I'm podcasting. And if you had told me when I was going into college that I could go corporate finance route, get my MBA or podcast full time, and those were like equals, I would have told you you're absolutely crazy. And so I don't think podcasts were even a thing back then. It's just a lot has changed. And you mentioned getting your master's alley and whether you do that or not. And I often think about that because I graduated undergrad with about 20,000 in student loan debt, give or take, which Really, it's not that bad. That's pretty manageable. But when I graduated with my MBA, I graduated with a little under 60. And so I almost tripled my student loan debt just by getting my MBA, partially because of my fault, but partially just because it's an expensive program. And I'm like, I look back on that. And now, when I knowing what I know now, I'm like, would I have really gone back and got my MBA? Well, exactly. And if you're on that like traditional career track for the next whatever 30 something years, it's like, okay, it's like maybe like a worthwhile investment. But if you're looking to get out of the corporate world, which you know obviously you did in like a very expedited time frame, now all of a sudden like there's a real opportunity cost there. And I think for Ali, we had the conversation like, do we go back? Do we not go back? But at the time, we didn't even know what Phi was. Well, that's exactly so right. So I was like, I am going to work a job for 30 years. I want good benefits. I want a pension. I want stability. Like checking all those boxes. Being a school employee, I do have an awesome schedule. Yeah. But if I was Phi, I'd have an even more awesome schedule. That's right. So a lot of things to consider. 
As you guys graduated school with debt and started to earn a salary, how did you approach the dynamic of investing versus paying off debt? I think I did not even think about investing really. And I think this is a thing for females. Like I do not think that as a society, we're coming further on this with pushing math and sciences and investing for women. But I think investing still is a very male dominated field and interest area. So I think as a female, it was not even on my radar. I remember I accepted my first job with a bachelor's making $12 an hour at a domestic violence shelter. I was like, man, that's not a lot of money for how much debt I have, but it is what it is. And I think I was living at home with my folks. I just, I was not even paying off my loans aggressively. I wasn't thinking about it. What about you? Well, and the thing is too, so we're both in human services. Mm -hmm. So when we graduated shortly prior to that, the public loan forgiveness program had just started. So in our minds, Mm -hmm. we're like, holy smokes, like that's a silver bullet. All we have to do is just enroll in this program and make minimum payments for 10 years. For 10 years. And then the government will just magically forgive our $102,000 in student loans. And so, like, that's what we did. We made minimum payments. And then I think it was right around like 2016 or 2017, the first cohort of people who were supposed to be eligible started like applying and the acceptance rate was super duper low. As we were getting older and kind of looking at that, we were kind of like, we really haven't made a dent. We still had 102,000. We're barely paying interest. Yeah. And so we need to do something very different. But investing was never, again, it was just like, We got the college degrees, the jobs will just take care of themselves, but then quickly the debt continued to grow and compound. I was going to ask you exactly that question. 10 years, it sucks to have to make payments for that long, but if you could just get it all forgiven and $100,000 worth in 10 years, why even try to pay it down quickly? But I mean, you guys answered the question, it's not everybody gets it accepted. I think the general consensus there is that everybody who's eligible will get it, but it sounds like that's not the case. And I don't know for certain, I never fell into that track, so I never really looked into it, but Based on what you said, it sounds like that's the case and why you decided to continue to just pay them down. There is a lot of stipulations for the program, and I don't want to knock it because like, we have a friend right now who's about to get his loans forgiven. Or he was he's supposed to, yeah. but he was very meticulous with his paperwork. He's been in a qualifying employer for 10 years. Great. But with that, I'm like, what if in 10 years, that's a long time, you yeah. know? What if I want to change my career field? What if I go on a three-year maternity leave? Well, guess what? That doesn't count towards it. Nope. So for us, it was just, yeah, it could be great to have it forgiven, but we wanted to kind of take more of the onus on us. And like, if we can really hammer out these loans and take charge, let's just do it. Because as you know, like the burden of student loans is so huge, even if it doesn't make fiscal sense to pay them off crazy aggressively, it does, but we wanted to do it, you know? Yeah. As opposed to being like, well, hopefully we'll get a decade from now and the government will be like, nope, we got you. We're going to take care of them. We kind of wanted to put it into our own hands. And then that kind of like propelled us into the world of investments. How have you guys paid down your student loans so rapidly? Are you guys both working second jobs? Are you doing a side hustle? What do you guys got going on that's allowing you to do that? I mean, we both have full-time jobs and we both have part-time jobs. We're life coaches part-time. And back when we first started our student loan pay down, I mean, we were taking odd jobs. Josh was Ubering. He was shoveling driveways. Like We were doing some funky things. But really, we were not making a dent in our student loans until we got our first house hack because we were paying... 1200 plus baseline in rent. And then with our first house hack, that went down to like 600. So increasing that gap between income and expenses, that is really what did it for us. 
And that's exactly it. We were working the odds and ends jobs and like combined, we make decent income, but I mean, it's not like six figures or finance or Silicon Valley or anything. So we tried to optimize as much as we could on the income front. Once we understood the power of house hacking and we were hearing testimonials, we were like, well, we're doing a lot to like save or like make a couple extra hundred bucks here and there, but what could we do to save thousands of dollars? And that's where eliminating your housing expense is a great way to, to start. I want to talk about house hacking a lot and I want to get into your story of investing and that part of the conversation. But before we do, I want to talk about this dynamic of trying to earn more money versus cutting your spending. So there's kind of two camps. Some people fall in the case of both, but basically there's two camps. One says you need to save as much money as you can and live super frugally and not really worry about making more money. And then other people say, just kind of keep your budget under wraps, make it reasonable, and then just try and make as much money as you can to make up the difference. Where do you guys fall on that? I think we kind of fall a little bit in the middle, you know, that gray area of let's try to cut what is reasonable without radically impacting the quality of our life. And let's try to increase our wages as much as possible without radically impacting the quality of our life. So I think at first we were trying to earn as much money, and that meant time away from each other, we're burnt out, we're miserable. And like our why for all of this is time together. So like that is not aligned to our why. And then with reducing our cost of living, we initially were like, let's get rid of takeout nights and the little Starbucks drink here and there. That wasn't really putting a dent in it. And we were miserable. So we were like, what are things we don't super value? Like, well, we're renting a tiny apartment. Why don't we house hack one? Well, you know, we're paying for these cars, but we don't super care about cars. So why don't we pay for cash and get used cars and drive those instead? So we don't have a car payment. So I think for us, that nice gray in-between area of let's make as much as we can without our life sucking and let's cut out as much as we need to, again, without hating our lives. So it took a while and some conversations and arguments, but we found that happy medium. Yeah, we stress test because like we started off like doing like Dave Ramsey's approach and everything. And we cut out all the little things that like we felt like brought us joy. And we were quickly feeling really burnt out because like Ali said, we were also working like a crazy amount of hours. We're kind of like burning the candle at both ends. So once we kind of like peeled back a little bit from work, and then once we kind of brought back into some of the like simple pleasures in our life, we got a lot more clarity about, okay, like what are those like really high impact items that we don't really value, like society says we should value, but we don't really value that much. Mm -hmm. How can we knock those out and then kind of grow from there? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling. 
even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So rather than thinking of it, saving more versus earning more, how do you think about, I just earned an extra dollar or I have an extra dollar here. Is it better to pay down debt, pay a bill, whatever the case is, or maybe do something fun with it. Once you've gotten past like meeting all your required bills, you've made all your minimum payments, you've done everything you need to do, you have a little bit of extra money. How do you guys think about spending some money on things you enjoy versus really just going all in 100% on reaching your financial goals? How do you balance that? I've listened to enough testimonials of people who like reached FI because they took that approach of like, all out, like head down, like just sacrifice all the joy to get to Phi. And literally like 99% of the time, they're like, knowing what I know today, I would have done it differently. And so learning from them, we are not necessarily like an all out approach. We started that way and that was not sustainable. No. So now it's like if all of our bases are checked and we have our money going into an investments and our emergency fund and all that kind of stuff is like, we are super happy to Spend things that we value. If you follow Ramit Sethi, spend lavishly on the things that you love and then cut mercilessly on the things that like, you don't value. And so things that we really value, we are happy to spend a good amount of money on those because they make us feel fulfilled. And then the other things we literally just like cut out and then we save money in those arenas. You guys have mentioned house hacking. So let's talk about that. First, what is house hacking and how did you guys even find out about this strategy? So house hacking is you could do it either in like a single family home where you buy it and you rent out all the rooms, not including your own, and then use the rent from those roommates to pay all of the mortgage or most of the mortgage to lower your cost of living. Or in our case, we buy duplexes, which is really just two apartments either on top of each other or next to each other. We live in one unit and the rent that we collect from the other apartment pays all of the mortgage. So we're able to live rent free. 
And the beauty of house hacking is that you don't need a ton of cash to get into a deal. You can do low down payments if you're a veteran, 0% down. For us, we use 3.5% down, we use 5% down. So you don't need 20% down into a house hack. Mm -hmm. You're going to live in it. So that's a really nice way to dip your toes into the real estate investing pool. And we first heard about house hacking. I'll let Josh tell that because he's the one that first discovered house hacking. (laughs) Yeah. So like I said, we started with like Dave Ramsey and we're like, this is not sustainable. And then so to kind of backtrack a little bit, Allie graduated with her master's 2017. We have six figures in student loan debt. I'm working full time. She's working full time. We're doing all the side hustles, so on and so forth. And I'm like, this is not sustainable. Right around the end of 2017, I found Scott Trench's book, Set for Life. And I kind of learned about bigger pockets and stuff. So I was like, oh, wow, like this is like a happy medium where like we don't have to hate our lives and we can eliminate some of the biggest things and still achieve our goals. So the goal was like in 2018, we're going to crush life. We're going to pay off debt. We're going to buy a house hack, so on and so forth. And then I got fired January 2018. And suddenly we went back down to just one income. And originally, like all of our goals fell apart and we were like, well, we're not going to be able to do this. But we kind of trudged through. I started a consulting business. Allie kind of paid the bills for a while. And then we were able to piece it all together and kind of build momentum back and build our incomes back up. And we were getting married in 2018 too. So we're like, well, we have a wedding and we want to buy a house hack. So that's kind of how we got thrust into real estate investing. Do you think house hacking is the best way for somebody to get started in real estate investing? I'm biased because we've done it twice, but 100%. I don't think we came up with this phrase. I think other people have said this before us. House hacking is like real estate investing with training wheels. It's nothing sexy. It's not exotic. It's like, oh, you need a place to live? Buy a house. Oh, there's additional rooms or apartments? Rent them out. Every month, you get a rent check. You have to maintain the house anyway because you're living there. So, I mean, it seemed so scary at the time. Buying a home, we've never taken on this much debt. Our first house was 155000 We were like freaking out like, oh my gosh. But now looking back, it's like, yeah, if you want to get into real estate investing, even if you just want to buy your first home and you don't want to have to pay your full mortgage, yeah. like house hacking is awesome. I mean, we talk to people about this kind of stuff all the time and there's all kinds of objections of like, well, what if I'm a single person? What if I have a family? And what's cool is like, there are so many ways people can house hack. Like I was talking to someone the other day and they're like, well, I really like my privacy. And I'm like, you can still have your privacy. We can find ways to get you a property where you have unlimited privacy. You won't even know there's a tenant there until you get your rent check overall. So yeah, I think it's a great way for especially a new investor or even, I mean, I've spoken to people where like they're getting ready to retire and they're kind of mathing out their 401k or whatever. And they're like, how can I make my retirement plan last longer? They buy a house hack, Mm -hmm. which lowers their cost of living, which actually then expands the lifespan of their retirement. So I think it's really great across the whole spectrum. What we're talking about is traditional house hacking, but there's so many alternatives to house hacking. The more I've been studying this, the more I'm learning about it. You can Airbnb a unit that you have, which is even more income, generally speaking, than a traditional rental. I actually I did a podcast interview with a guy this morning. He's more in the commercial space, but when he started, what he did was he leased a commercial building, some office space. And what he did was he rented out desk space in there. He just needed a little bit of desk space, but he leased out all extra desk space that was in this office so that he could have desk space for free. And 
that's house hacking. And you know, people do it with commercial real estate. They'll buy a commercial property and have their business in one unit, rent out the other units to businesses, and then their business has no overhead or no rent. And they have a huge advantage as a business from a capital financing perspective. And so house hacking can be traditional in the sense like where we live, but there's so many other ways that you can take this strategy and implement it in your life. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. And we traveled places. Like when we first got involved with real estate, we took like a belated honeymoon out to California. And while we were out there, like we stayed in Airbnbs. And especially once you get into investing, you like look at homes and assets completely different. And we were there and I was just like, I mean, they just like either had a spare bedroom and we stayed in the spare bedroom and like we helped pay their mortgage or they had some basement and some places like they completely converted it. So there's just so many ways to do it. I recently went to Denver and I was looking for an Airbnb and I forget how many, but there was 20, 30, 40 different Airbnb properties available and every single one was a house hack. And I was like, man, I wonder if this is because Bigger Pockets is headquartered in Denver or if house hacking is really just sweeping the nation. Because what these people were doing is it's very common in Denver area. There'd be single family homes with another unit in the basement, typically, especially if you do a little bit of renovation. So that's what people would do is they'd have a second entrance into the basement, rent that out on Airbnb, and then live upstairs. And I forget exactly what we paid. We paid five, six, seven hundred dollars for four or five nights. So not super cheap, but I mean, that's a huge dent in their mortgage, I'm sure. And that's just one person for four or five days. And there's 30 days in a month on average. So, I mean, even Airbnb is a way that you could take some extra space and cover your mortgage. To kind of like go back to when we were talking before, like house hacking, it was a thing. Like we talk to investors all the time who are older and they're like, oh, that's what you guys call it now? Like we just did that like 30 years ago to live for cheap. So like the terminology wasn't there, but with the rise of information, especially with like the biggest resource like art in the country, bigger pockets, educating the population or more so, I think more and more people are starting to look at their home, not just as like a place to live, but as like a viable means of income. As college gets more expensive, as cost of living gets more expensive, people are having to think differently, especially, you know, with everything that's been going on, people are looking for additional streams of income. That's how I fell into house hacking too. It, almost like those people did 30 years ago, but I just didn't know. I was kind of ignorant. Really, I bought a condo, had two bedrooms in it, lived there for a little while, realized I'd never even opened the door to go in that second room. And I was like, man, I should do something with this. And I ended up renting it out for like $750, somewhere in that range. And my mortgage all in HOA and everything was like 1000 or 1100 So I got to live for like 300 400 bucks a month. And I was like, I'm not that smart. Somebody definitely has done this before me. And so I started to look it up. And that's when I realized uh, that house hacking was actually a strategy. And from there, I've done three of them now. I'm sitting in my third one right now. So it's actually funny you say that. We were looking at a property the other day right on our street. And in some markets, duplexes are not plentiful. But we always say where we live in the capital <laughs> district in New York, like you could throw a stone and find 20 duplexes. Yeah. Like They're everywhere. Our street is lined with duplexes. And this guy literally bought the property in the 70s. And he said, yeah, they used to make homes like this. So they were duplexes. So families would have one. And then to generate extra income for their family, they would rent out the other unit. And I'm like, no way. In the 70s, it wasn't called house hacking, but right where we live. So it's just, um, you know, multi-generational living, maybe. Who knows? But it's just that it's cool for sure. Highly economical. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same here. So there are certain towns, let's just say there's a five, six town radius around where I live. Two or three of them are just have tons of duplexes everywhere. And then the other towns are like single families traditionally or generally speaking. But there's a couple of towns where they're 
all duplexes and they're all built in the 80s. If you look at every single one, they're built from 80 to 89 pretty much. Most of them in like 85, 86, 87. There was just a huge boom in this area for building duplexes. And Ali, maybe that's why. I don't really know why. I just know that builders went in an absolute craze and there's tons and tons of duplexes in this area. That could be like a really cool exploratory because like there must have been like some macroeconomic things or like maybe look at like migration patterns or whatever. I'm sure you could have like a field day to understand like connect the dots. Why were so many duplexes in that particular time pattern? Because we actually you should do that. Josh. We, we literally you research. We literally have the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. How did you guys even get aligned on all of this? You guys met in college, right? So you at least came through all of it together. I think that might make it a little bit easier than if you had met in after college. But how do you guys make sure you're aligned from a financial perspective? And what have been some of the challenges you guys have faced? Honestly, this was a huge challenge for us. I know now, like we created our Instagram and, you know, we talk to people about our experience and like, we're very, very aligned, but it's not an accident and it's not luck. When Josh first proposed the notion of house hacking to me, I thought he was insane. I was genuinely like, this is going to ruin my life. Like I'm expecting a single family home and we're going to have kids and we're going to have that nice American life. Like that's my future. Not like live in a duplex and be a landlord and you want to be a real estate mogul. Like what is this? And don't even talk to me about early retirement. So it took such a massive mindset shift for me. I think it took a heck of a lot of trust in Josh that he was not ruining our life. But it was honestly a lot of conversations about money. And I think at first, it was really hard for him to get that buy-in from me. We were going to houses where like, they were really sketchy. They were in bad neighborhoods. The cash flow was great, but they were not safe areas. So once we worked towards like a quality of life and like, yeah, you can house hack and it can still be great. And also what we want our futures to look like. We want more time together. We want to travel more, all of these things. And real estate can give us that. So It took time, but I'd say we love talking about money and real estate now. And it's super important to our relationship to always stay on the same page with that. So, yeah. And one of the things you had asked before, are you more in the like earn more or spend less camp? So for us, we kind of are in a perpetual state of like trying to find the happy medium. So initially I was like, I just want the most cash flow. I was like living in the Excel sheet. And the big thing we talk about is like, that's not Allie's language. She is not like the Excel sheet, cash on cash, ROI, IR, anything like that. She's just like, well, how is this thing that you want me to do? How is this going to help us and her achieve the things that she values most? So like, I had to really take a step back of like house hacking and real estate and stuff like that. And I was like, well, what do we want most out of life? What's our why kind of thing? I was so focused on the bridge, not the destination. And once we really started having those conversations, that was actually just like super transformative for us. Once I got her buy-in and I started speaking her language and showing her like, this is how house hacking can help us get those things that we value most, I noticed a real big shift. And then also on my end, when I stepped away from the Excel sheet and I was like, what's a win? It doesn't have to be like, we live for free right away. It's like, as long as we lower cost of living and live in a nice area or a decent area, that's a win. And that's when we got our first deal. Yeah. What's really interesting is I was in a very similar situation to what you guys were in, except you guys went down one path and eventually agreed. And we went down a different path and we didn't agree. And ultimately, we decided to go our separate ways. And I'm very open about that. And I'm very happy to talk about it because 
she's a great person. We just didn't align necessarily on our financial goals. And we decided it was best to go separate ways. But we were in the same boat. I was Josh in this situation and she was you, Allie. And it's not always that way. Sometimes it's reversed. But for us, it was the same. And I was trying to convince her of all these things. And we just we could not get aligned. And we were in a serious relationship. So it was something that I had to take very seriously and decide what was best. But I decided that ultimately, we needed to be more aligned on our financial goals. And I just didn't see us getting there after years of trying to come to an agreement. And so we ended up going our separate ways. But I wanted to provide that perspective because although you guys were able to do it successfully, it doesn't always work out that way. And you know, it's hard. It's a really hard situation. It's really hard. And a thing to consider, especially like being in the human services kind of like therapy field ourselves, like one of the number one reasons couples fight is finances. And I think we live in a society where we don't talk about money. We talk about how much money we spend and the cool things we buy, but we don't talk about budgeting and saving and investing nearly as much as we should. And that's why we have such a huge consumer debt problem and all of these things. And, you know, I think for us, yeah, we were fighting about money. And it's like, if you just keep having that same argument in your butting heads, it's exactly what you're saying. You're either going to figure it out and move forward, or you're going to say, this is not driving, this is not working, it's not sustainable. And we need to kind of go separate ways and find someone in the future that's more aligned with those values. And I'll say this, we've come a long way, still very much a work in progress. It is, every day. I'm like, oh, I want this new jacket. He's like, really? Do you, you know, we verify purchases over a certain amount. We talk about it and it's not always easy. Like, I don't like having to compromise with him over things. It's annoying. I'm like, sometimes I just want to decide what I'm going to do with my money, but it's not my money. It's our money. And that was one of the biggest mindset shifts too, like merging that finance, seeing that like, it's our goals, it's our money, it's our future. And I think that helped us align a lot. Yeah, it's really, really hard. The numbers is easy. I think from that perspective, Josh, you and I got it easy. We play with the spreadsheet a little bit. That's easy. The psychological and emotional and relationship parts of money and investing is the hard part. What's your guys' current portfolio look like? Do you have any other rentals? What does that look like? So right now we just have four units. So we bought house hack number one in actually the week of Christmas 2018. And then in 2019, because like our big goal in the beginning, right? Like we talked about was like we just don't want to have as much student loan debt. So we bought that house hack 2018. And then 2019, A, we actually wanted to like learn real estate and learn how to be landlords. But we paid off almost $52,000 in student loans and just in 2019. That was like really priority one. And then so we did that. We learned a ton. And then 2020, we started the year off paying off student loans with the intention of sometime in the second half of 2020, buying a rental property. Obviously, like everything shut down. So we really weren't sure what was going to happen. So we just kind of like started saving money to see what would happen. Things started to open up a little bit. And then we actually bought a second off-market duplex actually on the same street, September of 2020. So right now we're up to four units and we started this year kind of similar to 2020. We paid off a bunch of student loans the first part of this year. And now we're thinking probably sometime later in summer, early fall, we'll try to scoop up another duplex. So our biggest goals have been like paying down debt, getting some real estate properties. Our goal is also to expand our investments in terms of broad-based index funds. But right now we're pretty real estate heavy and debt pay down heavy. And once debt is paid, we'll be able to allocate more um, funds towards index funds as well. But 
This year, our big thing is we want to maybe either find another house hack or partner with some private money and find some properties that way and maybe do the burn method, but kind of exploring our options and always looking, but definitely looking to slowly scale our portfolio. Yeah, we don't really have aspirations of like having 40, 50 units, anything like that. Our goal, we'd love to live in a single family home one day, but live there for free because all of our rentals pay for that and then use other investments to pay for other things. So that way we can still like live a good quality life, just have our assets pay for it. That's the piece of house hacking that I think people miss a lot is that you don't have to do it this way. I haven't actually done it this way for various reasons, but you buy properties. If you buy a duplex and then you house hack it for a year, then you do it again. Now, when you've done that and you go buy a single family home, say you have four units at say $250 a unit, that's a pretty good rental, but you could even do better. You could be three, $400 a unit. Now you're looking at 1000 to 1600 maybe $2,000 a month in cash flow from just those four units. And if that's the case, now you have $2,000 to put towards your single family house that you buy. And maybe you're not house hacking, but if your mortgage is 2000 you have 2000 coming in from your previous house hacks. It's not really a house hack, but it kind of is, right? You have your old properties that you house hack that are now paying for your mortgage, and so you still have no living expense. And that's the kind of the piece of house hacking that I think a lot of people don't focus on. They focus on the beginning part, like part A, but not as many people focus on after the hack, I guess you could call it, and see what happens then. I love that you're bringing this up because this was really a big piece of how Josh got my buy-in because I want that single family home. I want a home that we can raise children in and all of these things. So with our debt situation and where we were financially, yeah, we could have bought the single family home. We could have done that, but we would have been making minimum payments. We wouldn't have been able to save. We would have been living a relatively paycheck to paycheck life for the next 30 years. It would have been a lot harder to reach our goals. So he said to me, you know, we'll get that single family home, but this is the most financially responsible choice that we can make if we want to cut down our spending radically and get that single family home but have other people pay for it. So that's pretty much what we're looking to do. And that's the thing. It was like, you can still have the thing that you want. And now like, I used to not really care about single family homes. Like, I grew up in like mobile homes all my life. So I was just like, anything that's better than that is dope. Right. But now I'm like, I'm really excited. It's just for the single family home because now I know the cash flow, relatively speaking, like we have in our back pockets. And I'm like, we're going to live in that home and really be able to enjoy it because we're not going to be so over leveraged. And other people, because of real estate, they're going to pay for it. So we can actually like, be there versus the average person who's just like super strapped and they have the home, but they can never be there because they have to work 60, 70 hours a week to afford that in the car and everything. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. If you sit down and think about it, Theoretically, you could have cash flow in three years of about $3,000 a month or so just by house hacking three times. Now, in practice, that's a little bit harder because if you don't sell the house hack that you're in, you don't get the equity. And so you don't have that money to put into a down payment for the next property. And so you have to save up that money. So sometimes in practice, you can't do it every single year. But in theory, you could house hack every year and generate cash flow and then use that to buy a property. So if you're 22, say 23, 24, 25 even, what's waiting three years, four years, five years even? You know, you're 25, 26, 27, maybe you're 30 by the end of the five years. I mean, now you have the rest of your life still and your mortgage is covered in a beautiful single family house just because you sacrificed for a couple of years. And that's kind of how I'm approaching it. I'm on my third house hack. For various reasons, I did not keep my first two house hacks. And I think looking back, that was the wise decision. But this one, I'm pretty much guaranteed going to keep it as a rental after. I'm 26 to house hack until I'm 30. And then I'm going to buy a beautiful single family house that I've always dreamed of with a big motocross track in the backyard and you know everything I've ever wanted. But I'm going to sacrifice for the next four years to do that. And then I'm not going to have to worry about it. And I think a lot of people need to consider that. Right. Well, and the thing is, people won't even scoff at the idea of like four years of college or like six years or what have you. And they'll like work really hard for like four years, five years, six years, take on a bunch of debt. What we're talking about is like work hard, not that crazy, but like work kind of hard for like three or four years and be sensible. It's like a season of sacrifice, but 
a lifetime of financial abundance. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes people think like, well, that sounds too hard. But a lot of times, because I think there's misconceptions out there of like, oh, real estate's really scary or oh, real estate's hard. And like, yeah, there's sometimes when it's hard, but it's like mostly passive. And ultimately, like other people are like paying for your housing costs and you can still have everything you want. I think either Brandon Turner or David Green, they say like, have the cereal before the marshmallows, but like everyone wants to like jump to the marshmallows. So but like, it is hard because we live in a society of instant gratification yes. where you want something. I have a question. I can get my phone and I can Google the answer instantly. Yeah. And then I'm going to forget it five minutes later. Right? Yeah. Like that is the world we live in. For a lot of people, it's like you grow up your entire life thinking, I have made it when I get that single family home. That is a token of adulthood here. You are now an adult. You got the keys for your single family home. And I remember that feeling of like comparing myself to my friends who all had that single family home. And I'm like, Josh, I don't feel like an adult. Like I'm yeah. living in an apartment. <laughs> that is so silly. I am an adult. I pay my bills. I pay my taxes. Like we're adults, you know? So it really is just sacrificing now and making those choices that aren't always fun. But future Josh and Allie are going to be really grateful that we did this for sure. I mean, present Josh and Allie. Yeah, I'm grateful right now. I'm pumped that we're house hacking. Yeah. I mean, we really do live in an instant gratification world. That's so hard about all of this. And I was looking at this a couple of weeks ago and you have these two people say in two situations and one house hacks and they maybe start a little bit lower. Like if you graph it, what they have from an outside perspective in terms of like how they look like they're doing, they're a little bit lower and the other people are a little bit higher. And then as time goes on, those people that seemed a little bit higher at the beginning kind of plateau and they can't buy a nice car anymore. They can't buy a bigger house anymore. They can't do these things. And then these other people start to catch up and they get a little bit nicer car and then they get a little bit nicer house. And then before you know it, they're way past the other people and they're like, how did you do it? And it's like, well, you remember the last couple of years, you had a much nicer truck than me. You had a much nicer house than me. And I was coming to your house for all the parties and you know whatever the situation is. Well, now I have the nice truck and I don't know anything on it. Now I have the nice house and whatever the situation is. And that's awesome because it's my third house hack. I've been doing it for a while. I'm kind of getting to that point where I'm getting past those people a little bit. And it's awesome because it's really gratifying and it also solidifies that we're doing the right thing. And sometimes it's hard. You see your friends out there, you're like, I know they make less money than me. I know they don't know what I know. They look like they're doing so much better. And so when you come across the other side, it just solidifies everything that you've been working for. And I encourage everybody listening to push through until you get to that point. And at that point is worth it. And I know I'm sure Ali and Josh, you guys probably agree with that. Yeah. Like you hear them all about like the debt snowball. I forget which one it was. I was just listening to a podcast and the guy talked about the income snowball. You get that first duplex. Like our first duplex. I think we made $750 a month, like not life-changing money, but we're like, that's $750 more. And we're not working like 40 hours a week or anything like that. To get it, right. And then you move out. And then we rented that unit out for $1,350. And then you buy another one. Those rents, they don't stay $750 and $1,350 forever. They go up periodically. And it's just like compounding works on anything as long as you stay consistent long enough. And so those rents go up and the property values go up and the debt goes down and just takes time. But once that income snowball really starts ramping up, that's when you kind of start getting that like hockey stick effect. And like that stuff we're starting to experience ourselves. And I would say like, we are still kind of like in the trenches of like, and I think it's because of our situation of having such a crazy amount of student loan debt. If we didn't have our debt, I feel like we would be ballers right now, but we have <laughs> our debt and we're not. 
I think we're still in the point where we're like, yeah, we're driving really old used cars. And like, we live in a tiny little apartment and our life is like not sexy or flashy by any means. I think it's a little sexy that we're living in a duplex though, but by conventional standards, like really not. But I know that we're going to get there because we didn't invent this crazy thing. We're doing something that tons of people have done and they've done it really well. And we see them on the other side and we're like, hey, we're using this same formula that all of these other successful people have used. We're not trying something crazy or exotic. We're buying real estate. We're living in it. We're paying off our debt. So I'm super pumped to like get to that other side. And I know we're close, you know? Not to belabor the point. I know we're long-winded here, but one of the (laughs) questions you had asked earlier of like, well, how did you buy in from Ali? I stopped trying to be Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. Instead of saying like, here's some crazy radical idea. I said, here's an entire really successful, smart people in this community. Here's all the testimonials that they're sharing for why this is probably going to work out. This isn't Josh's crazy idea. A lot of smart people said this could work and like, let's do this. And so that was like a real big thing too, is just don't try to reinvent the wheel. Success leaves clues. Just do what successful people have done for generations. And that's probably, if I could sum up everything from this whole interview, that's probably what I want people to take away the most is that you guys are awesome people. Josh, you and I have had conversations quite a bit in the past. Ali, you and I are just starting to get to know each other, but you guys are great, but you're nothing special. And neither am I. And I don't mean that in any disrespect, but everybody listening can do the same thing you guys do. They can do the same thing I do. You guys work careers that are very, I would say, emotionally gratifying, but maybe not so much financially yet you're still doing it. And so there are people that make a lot more or even make what you guys make and they can do it too. So I just that's what I really want everybody to take away from this conversation and your guys' situation. As we wrap up the show, when you think back to when you were just getting started on this personal finance journey, it can be about real estate, house hacking, debt, anything really, even life, managing money as a relationship. What do you know now that if you had known it back then, would have just made everything so much easier or would have made you more money quickly? What do you think would have got you there? So like a thought for me, we bought our first rental property when I was 28, he was 29. I wish we did it sooner. And I know we're still young, but I feel like throughout my 20s, we worked our jobs, we spent money, we didn't talk about money. If I could like impress like a golden nugget, it's like, start thinking about money and start thinking about your future because the choices that you make in your 20s can have profound ripple effects. And I wish we started those conversations sooner, but I'm really grateful that we started them when we did and that we're here. And also, yeah, like we are totally normal people who have pretty average salaries and we don't come from families with trust funds or real estate backgrounds or anything like that. We're not crazy handy people. We knew nothing about owning homes and we are doing it and we are like hustling to get there. So this path is attainable to you, even if you feel like it's not. So overcoming that mindset is huge. I just said like 20 things, but those are my golden nuggets. Well, and the thing is too, like something like we didn't talk about. I mean, I personally probably spent over like $20,000 on cars. Like we've made, relatively speaking, every financial mistake and yet here we are at a point where as long as we keep doing what we're doing, we have a really good shot at financial independence in like our mid thirties, maybe late if we want to kind of take our time with it. We're talking in our thirties and we've made all the mistakes kind of thing. So yeah, wish we started 
when we were 26 or 22 or whatever, but you can't reverse the hands of time. And the second thing is, is I spent so much time in my 20s being like, well, in order for me to be successful, I have to climb the corporate ladder and I have to create something that's never been done before. And trade time for money. And, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just the, I had to get the mindset of like, well, if I need to earn more, I just have to work more. So yeah, I would just say like, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Just find out what successful people have done, figure out one that like aligns with you and then just like stick to that though. That's the thing too, is like you actually have to really stick to it and not get like shiny object syndrome. I don't know who said it, but somebody said success leaves clues and it really does with podcasts. I mean, with so many things out there today, anybody listening, you can find the information that you need. You don't need to, like Josh has said, recreate the wheel. And I believe in that so much. I'm a shameless cloner. If somebody's doing something that works, I do the same thing and I'll just copy it and do it my own way and make it work for me. There's no point in redoing it. So with everything that's out there nowadays, the chance of you coming up with a new idea is so, so slim. So you might as well just focus on something that's working, tweak it a little bit to fit your situation is and hit the ground running. Josh, Ali, the FI couple, thank you guys so much for joining me today. This has been a long time coming and we will definitely be doing this again in the future. I really appreciate your guys' time. For everybody that's listening that wants to connect with you, learn more about your story, just chat with you, ask you some questions, where's the best place for them to go? Our main source is Instagram. So you can find us on Instagram at the FI couple. We also have a website, theficouple.com. And we have a Twitter account, all the FI couple. We have a Facebook page. You can find (laughs) us on all major social media platforms. Yeah. Yeah. And this is honestly, this is like such a cool experience for us. Honestly, like I've loved your podcast for a really long time. And so to be here now and be able to share our story is really cool. So we just really appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate the kind words, guys. I just have to say, I'm a little bit jealous that your handle is available on all social media channels. Mine was not. It's driving my OCD a little bit crazy, but I appreciate you guys so much. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.